Hello, everybody. God, I never even know what day it is. Today's Wednesday, so it's the 19th, the 19th of November, 2014. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. You may notice I'm not in my office today. It's because I have a thousand things going on. You don't care about it, but that's why I'm not in the office is because I got a billion other things going on I have to do. Uh, today on the live chat, uh, UFC 180 recap, Bellator 131 recap, to the extent you ask about it, and so far not many of you have, World Series of Fighting recap, um, Brock Lesnar rumors, and then, of course, um, the controversy surrounding Duke Rufus and Rufus Sport, which I'll probably get to first, given some certain things that have happened. Um, best way to interact, of course, is on uh, Twitter, at SBN Luke Thomas. Also, you may email me, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Uh, if you would be so kind, if you, um, by the way, I brought to you by uh, Coke Zero. I had a doctor write me, tell me how bad diet soda is. Folks, I know how bad diet soda is, but I can't keep drinking coffee at the clip I'm drinking. Plus, I want something cold. I realize you can drink cold coffee, but it doesn't seem right in winter. You get the idea. Um, please share this on Twitter or on Facebook, or the link to the post, the link to the YouTube video, whatever you want to share. I would greatly appreciate that if you could. Um, give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on Stitcher. I think that's really it. We're a little bit behind because I got started a couple minutes late today. But um, also, some of you have complained about lighting and uh, and, and uh, audio quality. Um, those are fair concerns, but I will fix them for you in the coming weeks. I've ordered equipment. As soon as it's here, we're going to have a, a bit of a better setup and production quality will improve as well. I know I'm making promises to you, but I've actually kept most of them. All right. With that said, I want to sort of go ahead and um, start with... Let's see what the first question is. Let me see what the first question is, and then we'll get to the rest of them. Uh, let's see here. First question is CB Dalloway thread. I really do I have to comment on that? I didn't even see that. Um, let me just go ahead and talk about the Rufus Sport thing to start things off because I put a post up on Reddit yesterday, and someone royally pissed me off with a comment. I didn't reply all that well, and the thread got set on fire. Tried to set a new thread up today. Um, you know, and at least open dialogue with him because I didn't feel I handled it. I, I know I didn't handle it properly yesterday. But let's start things fresh. So uh, I wrote an article about it. It's called Duke Rufus and a Tale of Two Rufus Sports. Now, when I say I wrote an article about it, I think a lot of people have some misconceptions. There's a lot of different moving pieces to the story. Some of the people didn't believe me or don't quite understand the story, but there actually are two real different components to what's happening here. The There is one story, which is the the unbelievably tragic death of Dennis Munson Jr., who was a Rufus Sport kickboxing team member um, who, under a Rufus Sport promoted event that was mostly handled by Scott Joffe, from what I can tell, uh, but nevertheless, under the Rufus Sport banner, which should be noted, he died. Everyone has seen the video, at least many of you have seen the video. You certainly read the article, the, the, the I mean, first-rate journalism uh, that came from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which probably took months of work to do. I mean, absolutely months to get that video done, to get the extra police video, and then to get all the interviews, and to put it on top of the video, and to write the stories, and to talk to all the people. I mean, this is painstaking journalism, so hats off to them. There's another issue, which we think are related. It's not entirely clear, very well could be. I think it's kind of related, but it's that in the wake of that death, or I should say not even the death, but that article, there were people who came out, like Rose Namajunas, uh, Eric Schaefer, Pat Barry to a lesser extent, um, and other people as well who have come out and said there's been hazing at Duke Rufus's, certainly bullying, the guy is not nice, 
they beat up on people there and other people that had reached out to, to Rose, she forwarded their stories. And this thing all sort of circulated on social media. So there's a lot of moving parts to the story. Clearly the most important one in many respects is about what happened with um, Dennis Munson Jr. I don't know that you're going to get any more answers talking to Duke or Scott uh, than what the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel was able to get. Um, but the one I was sort of like really focused on was the gym culture thing. Not that Dennis's story is not, you know, crazy important, but I think we, I'm able to look at that story and say there's a lot that went wrong here, not least of which is the fact that it's yet more evidence that unsanctioned combat athletics is a recipe for disaster. Um, I, I have shared a story with you guys all the time. I remember a promoter called me up one time. I'm not a promoter. Somebody else who was related to a promoter in Virginia that wanted to have a young teenage boy fight an adult female. And amateur MMA in Virginia is unregulated. And I just sort of thought, well, this is a disaster. It wound up not going forward, but nevertheless, you get the idea. Like, If you're an MMA fighter watching this and you're an amateur, do not fight, or kickboxer, do not fight an, an unsanctioned event. Don't do it. Um, even if the people are well-intentioned, let's assume that they were not even for Duke's case, but any other case, even if they're well-intentioned, they may not know the protocols. Look at what Duke said in my article. He's like, I don't even know all the rules. That's a red flag. That's a red flag. If someone says, I don't know, again, he says that Joffe was the one in charge of promoting it. But when I sort of pressed him on some of the details, he was like, well, this, what, what about Al Workers? I know Al Workers. Al has worked some of the biggest events in Japan. Al was the referee in the case of Dennis Munson Jr. And he was like, well, Al's been doing this for 40 years and blah, blah, blah. And this doctor, that's the one that the state sanctions. And these are all true things, but you just didn't really have a clear grasp of what was required from a regulatory standpoint about having the elevator at the top floor and things like that. But anyway, as, as important a story as that is, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel covered that from pillar to post. Um, the story's not over per se, but it's hard to get anything extra out of them because they're just going to give you the same answers that they didn't know and this, that, and the other. What I sort of found interesting was um, the gym culture thing, because that one took me by surprise. I've worked with Duke on four occasions. I'll tell you, from my perspective, the guy could not be nicer, uh, at least to me anyway. Um, I don't think he takes a lot of crap from people, but certainly was not uh, a difficult person to work with in any capacity. Yet, you have people who are coming out firmly with these stances and then sharing the other stories of people who have very similar stories. And they have no financial gain. They're not taking Duke to court. Um, this is simply a public thing they're doing. So there must be something behind that, right? There has to be, right? Why would people go out of their way to bash someone who heretofore has been largely celebrated, um, successful, right? Runs a pretty successful MMA gym and coaches some of the trainers and, and yet have these really sort of damning indictments about him. So I tried to get two critics. I was only able to talk, talk, talk to one. In retrospect, probably just sort of for insurance purposes would have had another. But I think Schaefer's perspective is some of the most interesting because he was the guy who helped form the grappling side of things. Um, let me say a couple things about this. Number one, here's my read on the whole thing after talking to everybody. My read is that when I asked Duke, I asked him some of the things from Rose's Instagram and Twitter. I was like, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? He never really confirmed or denied it. He just would have like said other things about it. And I would press him, okay, but Duke, did it happen? Um, and I was never able to get a clear answer, which, you know, you can draw your own conclusions from that. But my read on it was that back in the day, none of us were there except those folks who spoke out or even haven't spoken out. It was probably a bit crazy back in the day. 
Um, and you can take crazy for what you want it to be. You know, um, was he a bully? Um, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that in the day, he certainly was. Um, were people mistreated? Again, I have no reason to disbelieve these people who are making these comments without any any hope of recompense. They're not they're not trying to gain anything from it, um, uh, other than the dissemination of information. Seems to me like things probably were not that they may have been bullying people back in the day. Again, I don't know to be sure, but it's the number of complaints, the specificity, and the nature of the complaints makes the proof of them really hard to overlook. On the other hand. Um, I also believe that, and I'm not saying one forgives the other, but if I'm trying to get an understanding of what the camp was and what the camp is now, it does seem like Duke really was maybe going simply too hard on people, was being too rough on people, was being unfair with people, was being, um, you know, downright abusive to people in certain circumstances, but that now he has sort of dialed back, that he has a much more formal program in place. Um, he has a successful school. He seemingly does have a number of pros who, don't have any problems with things. Now, again, you could sort of walk down the levels and ask people. And people were saying like, oh, if you ask a pro, well, well of course he's going to say that. I don't think an amateur would give you much of a different answer either, frankly. And whether that's out of duress or any kind of other uh, uh, press, I don't I don't think the answer would be significantly different. Um, um, what else? Um, you know, it's a much more systematized thing going on now at Rufus Sport. And um, to the extent that that has reduced or eliminated the kinds of transgressions that Rose and Pat and others have identified, um, I'm not close enough to the situation to know, but it certainly seems like they've been minimized uh, from what I'm able to tell on the outside anyway, because I don't really know. I mean, none of us really know. I mean, everyone wants to go and sort of like either uh, say Duke's a hero or stab him in the gut with a pitchfork, and none of us really know what the answer is. Eric sort of knows his experiences, and Rose knows hers, but short of any sort of verifiable proof, this, this is what we're relying on as testimony. Again, very credible testimony, but testimony nevertheless. Um, but so the one thing that I was curious about, and again, some of the people just don't seem to understand how these two are different issues. Related, maybe, right? Because the question is, is what happened to Dennis Munson I mean, part of what you can look at him and you can say is, well, this is clearly just poor regulation. It's self-regulation, but it's poor regulation, right? I mean, there's so many things that could have been done and weren't. And as a function of that, you know, this man tragically lost his life. That's, that's, I think that's a no-brainer. I think everyone could say that. But I think what some people want to go further and say as a function of what Rose and others have done on social media is, is there something, you know, um, inherent in the way in which Duke Rufus runs his business that has something to do with how this guy died. And the argument may be that there's just sort of a jejun attitude about the health and safety of their fighters, right? Because you see in the video when, when Lester, not Lester, I'm sorry, when um, Dennis Munson is sort of just like not looking okay and slumped over and giving all these signs and these tells that you heard on that video from the ringside physicians and Nick Lumbo and others that, you know, he's sort of being propped back up and, and this is not okay behavior. Al Wicker's not doing enough. Ringside doctor from a testosterone clinic said they're playing angry birds on his phone. Um, but, you know, w is there something that happens there that carries over into the way things happen over there? That's a really difficult argument to make. Not that it's impossible or wrong. It's just not clear what the one-to-one -one really is. But I actually think that they're, they should be kept separate for this following exercise, right? Because I had people being like, well, obviously, it's all related to this guy's death. And again, I, I, I certainly anyone's death is, you know, uh, 
deserve worthy of the most examination possible. However, it's also worthy of examining the other issues for this reason. Imagine that Munson had never passed away. Imagine maybe he won or lost his kickboxing bout and things just carried on as they were. Right? If that's the case, and you want to say that that issue of what happened to the gym is, is only an issue insofar as it relates to what happened to, to Munson, then what you're saying is absent his death, nothing is going on there. In other words, my point is, let's assume that nothing had happened to him. Isn't it still worth examining and figuring out and trying to decipher whether or not there was um, an abusive culture there, independent of what happened to Dennis Munson Jr.? Is it not worth looking into the issue based on the things Rose had said about whether or not people were mistreated either back in the day or currently? That to me seems like the answer is yes. It does. That is worthy of examination. And that is what I try to do. I try to sort of, the issue of whether people were allegedly abused there to me, while that may have some transfer of, you know, relevance to what happened to Dennis Munson Jr., in and of itself is also important. It doesn't all of a sudden just become important or relevant because this poor guy died. It certainly becomes more visible um, because people are trying to connect the dots, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly. But to me, that issue has its own importance in and of itself. Whether it came about as a function of this, this uh, kid's poor death is true. But going forward, we have to evaluate that on its own terms too, which is what I tried to do, um, however poorly or well. So when you accept that, when you accept that independent of this situation here, this tragic situation, does what happened in that gym have its own set of um, uh, is, is what happened in that gym also independently worthy of examination? I would say that it is. And what I basically found was what I told you before, but I want to sort of issue a, uh, something to you. Um, if, if Rose was abused in the way she was abused or mistreated, um, that's never okay. And if Eric or people he saw in the gym, uh, Chico Camus, the story, I wrote about the story of Chico Camus in the story. Eric told me that Chico Camus, they brought in wrestlers to help out Anthony Pettis for the Shane Roller camp. According to Eric, he says that um, Duke came into the practice sort of midway, didn't like the intensity these wrestlers were giving. And these were sort of, an, the wrestlers were told to wrestle, but it was an MMA context. And so the MMA fighters were told to sort of beat up on them. That is Eric's um, uh, allegation. Uh, so, so what I'm sort of wondering here is, um, again, imagine this. N none of that is okay. Like if Rose, the things that happened to Rose were bad, they were bad. The things that happened to Eric were bad, they were bad. They're bad on their own terms. They're not bad because of something else happened. They might be um, even worse now, but they're bad already, right? If, if in fact they're true. But I sort of was wondering something the other day. I am never going to forgive any kind of abuse or bullying to the extent that it's true. Um, but the stories I was hearing, I spoke to three different people for that story. And all three, all three cited um, what had previously happened at Militich as sort of an example of what you could either think of as what happened or what, in the case of maybe what Ben Askren was saying, was what this was not what that was. But Milicic was sort of held up as this example of like what goes wrong in a gym in terms of, um, and now the gym is now closed. I mean, back in the day in the Matt Hughes and Tim Sylvia era, sort of held up as this like ideal 
not a good ideal, but an ideal example anyway, of what happens when there's just sort of aggro gym barbarism and guys are hazed and told to beat each other out of the gym. Let me ask you a question. We sort of look at that, not reverentially, we sort of look at it as a way that was abusive, but no one really extends any sympathy to Tim Sylvia, and I think they should. I'm not telling you you shouldn't extend sympathy to Rose or anybody else. If you believe it's true, and there's plenty of evidence to believe that it is, you should. But it's kind of weird that, like, what is really different about what happened at Militich, which people have just corroborated over and over, than what happened in the gym at Duke's, allegedly happened in the gym at Duke's. Substantively, there's not a lot of differences. You could make a couple different arguments. One, um, you know, one happened earlier in an earlier era of MMA where guys didn't really know what was what, and they just thought that's what you did. Duke should have had the benefit of hindsight. Um, you know, um, you, you could say any number of different things, but at, at its core, you know, Tim Sylvia was abused by people there. I mean, I mean, royally abused. And he sort of stuck around for it, and everyone kind of bought into the system. But even Rose was saying, people were like, why didn't you speak up before? Her answer was, I thought this is what you're supposed to do. Allegedly, according to Eric Schaefer's story about Matt Mitrione and um, Ben Rothwell, which Eric Schaefer alluded to in my interview with him, which in was included in the story, was that, uh, you know, one heavyweight had to beat another out. Apparently, Matt Mitrione was like, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. That's exactly what people said about what happened at Miltage Fire Systems. And I got news for you. I think a lot of gyms are that way all around the world. All around the world. There is a certain machismo and barbarism that is the guiding light of ethics in a lot of MMA gyms, even today. Now, that's less so as you have things like injuries ruining people. Um, but injuries are still a problem too, right? Like some of this is just from overtraining that has nothing to do with barbarism per se. Maybe just, you know, uh, uh, an unhealthy focus on strength and conditioning. All I'm pointing out to you is, I'm not telling you that because things happened at Militich and we don't get angry about it, we shouldn't get angry about things that had allegedly happened at Dukes. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, um, A, it's a lot more common across gyms than it seems to be made clear. And two, if you're upset about what happened allegedly at Dukes, you should transfer that back over. I mean, this sort of forgiving because it was the first and it was the, the most you know, the huge example of people being, you know, uh, hazed informally or formally seems to me hardly a forgiving factor, right? So I'm just trying to understand intellectually, like, what is the difference between what happened at Multich Fighting Systems in its heyday and what allegedly happened at Dukes? Maybe one of the differences is that, one, what happened there was a different era, two, you know, I don't know that people have implicated directly Multich in that way, although, you know, maybe that's because they haven't told. So I, I don't know. I don't know the answers. And but certainly from a public standpoint, people are implicating Duke more closely to it. All right, fair. That might be a different example. But the blame goes in Miltich anyway across people. Matt Hughes was you know horrible to people, and he admitted it in his book. Tim Sylvia's admitted this is not like I'm not sharing new information about this. So anyway, look. See, from my read on it was that. Um, in terms of the gym culture, whatever happened there, it seems to be problematic. There's 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 smoke there's smoke there, and where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, the specifics of it, I couldn't get any clear answers from anyone on, and I and I'm, I apologize for that. But you know, I can't make them tell me what they don't want to tell me. Um, but I also feel like I didn't get the strong sense that that what's happening now is the same. Last thing I'll say about it, Eric Schaefer came out and said, "Well, I had a guy from his gym six months ago come to me and tell me he had to bully somebody else." So. You know, you're able to draw your own conclusions. Um, you know, and I know people have said that, you know, Rufus Sport has some of the better, more injuries in the sport. They, they seem to think their injuries are down. 
But the last thing I'll say about this, and I'll move on because it's been 20 minutes on this, and I apologize. And I'll promise to go through all these other questions pretty quickly. The last thing I'll say about this, because this is sort of an important story, is that people are like, well, oh, you got to do Rufus' side of things. Yes, because you're supposed to. You may think, fairly or unfairly, that somebody is an odious toad. Their perspective matters. And I had someone reach out to me and say, well, why didn't you get Lloyd Urban's perspective? Well, I know for a fact that Brent Brookhouse and a lot of other outlets tried desperately to get Lloyd to comment. And were close every time and then eventually it didn't work. He chose not to comment. And so the story had to advance without him, which is actually a grave mistake on his part in terms of, you know, if you want your perspective to be included in stories, you need to give it. I'm not one of these people who believes like, oh, well, let's get your perspective and your perspective and we don't know what the truth is. I'm telling you, I kind of feel like there's some, there's that maybe things back in the day that Jim weren't so great, um, that these allegations, they can't all be coincidence and from people who have nothing to gain. That to me is pretty damning testimony, right? But at the same time, I don't think Duke's points about the alterations he's made and, and, and Ben's points about he really didn't know what he was doing, has kind of figured it out in the job. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. You may say one doesn't forgive the other, and I'm not here to debate with you. But if you want to advance a story, you have to talk to as many people as possible. And Pat hadn't given a lot. I tried to reach out to him. He didn't return my calls. Eric had given some details, but not a lot. I wanted some specifics, and I got him. I got the fact that a UFC heavyweight was told to bully another UFC heavyweight, according to him. I got the fact that a coach was a striking coach that was, a quit was told to come back and fight it out. I got that specific out of him. I got the Chico Camus story out of him. I got a lot he, I got a lot of, of information that I hadn't gotten from anybody else and seen anywhere else and put it into the story. This idea that I was like high five and Duke the whole time and I'm just going to get his perspective on it is just sort of it's just nonsense, which is why it infuriated me when someone wrote that comment on Reddit. It just drove me up the wall, okay? Because I was actually legitimately trying uh, you know, to get perspective here that you hadn't heard. And sometimes you're going to hear perspectives that you may not be comfortable with, but we have to both tell the truth as best we can find it and tell the perspective of people who are legitimately at the center of the story. And that's Duke Rufus, and he has a perspective. And you can hear my dog who's going to get thrown out the window. Anyway, I'm done with that. It's the, I've spent way too much time on it. I'm going to get through all these questions, I promise. I've spent too much time on it. I, uh, you know, It is what it is, but it's an important story and it's important to tell how these stories come about and why they have value and why they tell, why you tell them and how you tell them, right? Because if you don't, people just assume you're just doing PR like, are like, oh, you Duke's mouthpiece? Well, no, I called him because no one had, at the time I had done it, no one had spoken to him. Maybe he has something to say about it. Maybe he might tell me something that's illuminating. Maybe he'll tell me something that is in no way illuminating and that makes him look bad. In fact, I thought when he said, well, I don't really know all the regulations as it relates to the event, well, I said, wow, I can't believe he, can't believe he actually said that. That's not that great. Um, you know. But again, he sort of said Scott was in charge of the promotion, which you can take for its own value. And a lot of other questions I had, he didn't really have a lot to talk about. Um, so anyway, that's the story I wrote. That's why I wrote it, and I hope that you understand. Moving on. Dana White's early exit. Many have asked about the reason for Dana's recent absence from the spotlight, most, most notably leaving early from the UFC 180 presser, but no one has asked about its effect on the sport. Casual fans love Dana's candor, which will be missing. Will this hurt the UFC at all? Um, hurt the UFC? I don't think so. I would say that it's, I actually don't understand it, if I'm being perfectly honest, because um, one, as you mentioned, fans love it. Two, media loves it. I'm not going to deny it. it doesn't do great traffic. Um, it has some you know, uh, real journalistic value. 
right? Like, what does the president of this company have to say about this situation? I mean, yes, he might be doing promoter sticks sometimes, but he's also sort of telling you the direction things may be headed. That's sort of important to relay to audiences, right? Um, but it, he says that people took his words out of context. Now, I don't know what he's referencing specifically, but I can tell you, I, I, I would be, I'm surprised at that. Because if you look at what, from my vantage point, what happened was that all the major sites, basically, from my vantage point, I mean, it's just mine, they basically mostly either included the video or put a transcript of what he said, individual quotes, and he says those quotes were out of context, but from what I could tell, he was helping to define the narrative for many fights and the organization and a lot of other things, and he was making himself very visible. He has removed that by not doing the post-fight presser stuff, to a large extent anyway. Um, I don't see how that benefits him with the UFC. Like he had such a profound influence over the way fans thought about things post-fight, and the way in which he made his opinions visible. That had a real impact on the way people perceive things. Um, removing that, I mean, I understand he's got issues with how you know certain outlets and who those are. I don't know, but for me, from what I can tell, um, I, I thought that he had a lot to gain from doing that. Like that, it, there was a there was a real benefit to him um, removing himself from that. I, I frankly don't quite understand it. Do you think his absence from spotlight scrums is a little bit damage control from the GQ article? No, I do not. I don't think there's really any damage in that GQ article. Kelvin Gastelum, Luke, what are your thoughts on Kelvin Gastelum's drubbing of Jake Ellenberger? How do you see Gastelum stacking up against Tyron Woodley? I have to say, there's one thing I've been wrong about all the time. Now, I did pick him to win against Woodley. You know, I took a bath on my World Series of Fighting Predictions, but I did okay in UFC and pretty good on Bellator, too. I got the shilling upset right, but um, I did it because I knew I was wrong about him. Like, I watch the kid, and I'm like, oh, I see this problem, I see this problem, I see this problem. I will admit I probably have an ultimate fighter bias that when I watch guys come for the ultimate fighter, I just don't give them the benefit of the doubt that I probably should. And I'm probably wrong for that because his ascension is just indisputable at this point. Now, I will say with Jake Ellenberger, he really surprised me. When he turtled up and just put his hand up and didn't really continue scrambling, like he just stopped scrambling. I thought that was weird. And when Gastelum sunk the choke, he didn't really hand fight. He just sort of waited for it to happen. That, to me, was weird. I'm, again, I, I think Gastelum would have won no matter what. You know, So that's let me be clear about that. But at the same time, I just felt like, you know, what a reversal of, of careers and of fortunes. You know, such a representative bout. People were bellyaching about that card, and rightly so. But those top three fights were legit at UFC 180. And that one in particular, man, there were so many stakes on that fight. Um, and the way Gastelum was able to, to to just sort of manhandle Jake Ellenberger, I thought was I thought was pretty compelling. And now against Tyron Woodley, I think if he can press forward on Tyron Woodley, you know, if he can do it smartly enough, that's a fight he can easily win. Uh, let's see another question about it. But what about what about the? All right, we'll skip that one. Someone posted the schedule and said, "I'm scared, Luke." Someone's going to tell my wife is going to take me to divorce court. No, I don't think they're going to take me to divorce court, but um, that schedule is something. Let me say something about that schedule. Uh, 36 Saturdays from what I counted, although I, maybe 35, 37, um, roughly 36. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, you know? And here's the truth. Like, the way in which it works for their partners at Fox Sports 1 or Fox Sports, I should say. I don't think it's that big a deal. Still too many to me, especially six in July. I just don't know how anyone expects that to, to be a win for the brand over time. But um, but okay, they're going to do it. 
But to me, sort of a couple things that stuck out. One, it's just too many shows overall. Two, 13 pay-per-views. Really? I mean, because listen, here's the deal. If you have nothing but ideal circumstances going forward, meaning, let's say, literally no entrance, not one, not one bout cancellation from the opener on Fight Pass to the main event on pay-per-view, not one cancellation, what kind of card are you going to have? You're still going to have cards that are slightly watered down. Now, a little more palatable, but slightly more watered down. And that assumes zero injury. Zero. Um, I thought they would dial back to maybe 11, even just one a month. They're still doing more than one a month. That to me, I, I don't understand that. You know, I just don't. Um, I'm not wishing injury upon them. Certainly not. I hope these pay-per-views wind up being big successes. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's good for everybody. But I, you would have thought after last year, they would have said, we have to incorporate a certain amount of burn rate in terms of fights we're going to lose per card. Let's build cards to that effect, at least for the pay-per-view space. Uh, and it doesn't feel like that's the case. And that to me is, is, is um, troubling. Uh, Kevin Gastelum versus Tyron Woodley. I'll just say real quickly about it. Um, go watch the BJJ Scout video where he talks about uh, Tyron Woodley versus um, Rory McDonald and the way in which McDonald took away the things that Rory, rather that Tyron likes to compete against. Some of those things Kelvin usually gives to people, some of them he doesn't. So it'll be curious to see to me what Kelvin does because Tyron basically does sort of has one style of, of achievement. And I mean, I'm sure he can win a number of ways if given the opportunity, but against high level guys who are contemplative and strategic, he has sort of one thing that he does that really nets him the win. This is about whether or not Kelvin Gastelum has the tactical and strategic adjustments ready to be made when he feed, when he, when he fights Woodley, if he does, and these aren't huge things, but they're subtle and subtle is important. Um, he can win. So I kind of favor Gastelum early. Um, he also has a good chin, but I wouldn't sleep on Woodley. All right. If the UFC headlined with uh, the title is double standards for UFC and Bellator. If the UFC headlined with Bonner Ortiz, the MMA media would have been tripping all over themselves in a rush to rip them to shreds. But when Bellator does it, it's fun and fresh, and these are his words, not mine, and a big event feel. Bellator's corporate owner has several orders of magnitude more money than Zufa, and Scott Coker has a wealth of promotional experience. Is a double standard in treatment really appropriate, and for how much longer will the media continue to give Bellator a pass on stuff they'd slam the UFC for? Um, it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it because I could not disagree with you fundamentally more, right? <laughs> when you go to Radio Shack... Do you, which is a billion dollar corporation, do you go in there and do you ask them, why aren't you as good as Best Buy? No. You sort of accept it for what it is and the things in which they can deliver and the way in which they deliver, which is to say, roughly speaking, give or take, UFC has between basically 85 and 90% market share. And roughly speaking, Bellator has the most of what's left thereafter. Although not all of it, because Cage Warriors and 1FC and... Um, World Series of Fighting up a little bit too. So you see what we're talking about here. Now you can say that Bellator has this Viacom backing, and that's true. And you can see that Viacom is putting a little bit of extra money into the presentation, at least for these tent pole events. You are wrong. Sorry, flat out. You are wrong if you treat UFC, mentally speaking, from an expectation and an output way, the exact same way you treat UFC. 
If you treat, sorry, if you treat UFC and Bellator exactly the same, you're doing something wrong. They are deeply inequivalent from a brand, from a talent resources perspective. There might be some monetary resources, but even then it's not the same. Viacom isn't going to go, okay, forget about Paramount Pictures, forget about Spike TV, forget about Comedy Central. We're going to dump $40 billion and we're going to put it in Bellator MMA. That's what we're going to do. We're going to turn Spike TV into the Bellator MMA channel because we've got $40 billion and we want to compete. That's not the case. Bellator on its own as an entity uh, with corporate ownership by Viacom has to be profitable. It has to make money. That's why Viacom wants it so it can make more money, right? If you just turn it into a loss leader, what are you doing? Now, there are certain values to having a loss leader. In other words, a product or an entity that just loses a bunch of money but has other benefits that it confers upon you, fine. But what are those benefits? That you've got one, you know, two sports that you're airing on your Spike TV channel with Glory and then Bellator? No. They need Bellator to make money. This idea that you can just pump an infinite amount of resources in it to compete is not true. They probably lost money on that show on Saturday. Uh, I think going forward, if they can continue to get ratings like that, they'll be able to command more money for ad dollars. But it's a Spike TV product. It's not a pay-per-view product. They have to be able to get enough ratings and enough live gate attendance to pull enough people at the gate and get enough advertiser money, both in your actual experience and on television, to make money. Let me tell you something, folks. That's very hard to do, and I sincerely doubt that they did that on Saturday, as good as the ratings were. Because you only can sell based on your resume, really. Like, you know, here's what we're normally good for, and we'll put rate ads at that kind of clip. So this idea that like, oh, well, how come Bellator can get away with it? Bellator has no choice but to put things like that on. This isn't the same as Strike Force. Every time I keep talking about this, when Pride died and then Strike Force died, and now you have Bellator, every time a number two dies, or a number one, or whatever you want to call it, dies, the talent pool that's left over for the number two, the new number two to use, is dramatically reduced. And their profile is dramatically smaller. Now, yes, they've gone from, say, um, Showtime to now Spike, and that's a big upgrade. But, you know, the reason why Tito Ortiz and Stephen Bonner are headlining, yes, of course, they have name value on Spike. And, yes, not a lot of people know who Michael Chandler and, and uh, Will Brooks are from a visibility standpoint. The other reason is they don't have a lot of choice. UFC has choices they can make about their product. You can hear my dog just ruining my door. He's going right to the pound after this. You can you, you can make choices. Oh, we can go to Mexico City, or we can go to Singapore, or we can go to San Diego, or we can go to New Jersey, or we can go to anywhere on the earth. We, we can have a lot of options. And we have 90% of the best fighters. I'm glad that they're not just held to different standards, but they're fundamentally different concepts. The UFC is basically, more or less, I mean, there's some problems I have on the other end of things, but at its core, it's where the best fight the best, truly. And with some exception, you get some really good guys fighting in Bellator, but it's a lot more about let's have interesting personalities and interesting bouts and guys fans care about who have a lot of ability. Maybe they can't beat wrestle boxers over there, but they can do interesting things over here. Joe Schilling and Melo Manhoff. These are guys who are not top 100 middleweights, right? I mean, maybe top 50 or something like that. But we both know they're very credentialed kickboxers. And their bout in MMA was largely a kickboxing bout. Slightly different, obviously. Some nuances that happened both in the clinch and then they had their interaction on the ground. But you're sold on the idea because you still know they're capable of greatness in certain respects and in certain contexts. And those contexts are the ones that Bellator focused on. They have to do things like that because they simply don't have any other choice. You know, 
So this idea that they have this infinite sum of wealth and all these resources to pull from and should be measured alongside UFC is not the case. The fact that they are on Spike and not something like Showtime or some other small channel, I admit is a huge boost. And if things change over time, then we'll reevaluate that conversation. But either you admit that Bellator is a competitor to UFC or it's not. And if it's not, and in many fundamental respects, it is not, then you can't have the same kinds of expectations. The time is almost. What was up with the botched announcement? Was there ever a real announcement or was it just to get us to tune in? How many more times can Dana sell us on Wolf tickets and expect us to buy in? My understanding is just a rumor. I'm not reporting to you anything anyone's ever told me except what I've seen circulated among public conversation is that it was some sort of apparel deal and the rumor is remock. But if that's true, I have no idea. I'm not telling you that because it's the truth. I'm telling you that because that's what's been circulated publicly among various people. Um, I recently came back from an ACL injury and was very excited to train a lot of MMA and BJJ. The difference is that now because of an affiliation with another gym, we have a few new trainers who pride themselves on insulting attitude towards their students at Duke, as Duke, excuse me. Yelling insults to grown-up men and women and going crazy hard in practice like having to do 300 squats at once without a break in a beginner's class. We often talk about a lack of ego in the MMA gyms. By the way, this is my point that this kind of a, this kind of like barbarian s just happens everywhere, unfortunately. But is that really the case? It is obvious that the golden boys like Askren and Pettis only have good things to say about the gym as they are being treated very differently. I also think that your article is very one-sided and you kind of avoid all the critical signs of mismanagement. Well, I've addressed some of those criticisms, but to your point, if you're at a gym, um, you should go to a place where you feel comfortable. And if you don't, you should leave. If you're doing things that you don't think are, um, you'll know if you're being pushed physically because you're being encouraged to cross finish lines that you've never crossed before. And they're speaking to you in ways that motivate you to go further. That's different than going out of fear or um, some sort of like un you know negative consequence. And you have to understand the difference between those two. Uh, let's see, I talked about that. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, you shocked me when you hinted that you might support PEDs and MMA because of some reason that it would never go away. I don't remember saying that, but I'm sure I did. What are your reasons as I very much disagree with uh, because of the health and safety of all athletes? Let me just say this. I am much more in favor of USADA coming in and then regulating it as a third party in the ways in which, you know, Brian Stan and um, many others have discussed. But what I would say is uh, I had an argument with somebody, a lawyer, and they had a pretty compelling point, which is not that we need to so all of a sudden, hey, let's let everybody use. But they did say the following, like, there's this idea that, you know, steroids are inherently unfair. But there's an argument about the you know origination of what fairness stems from. Because if you're, you know, forget all his legal problems, we can all agree that as an athlete, Adrian Peterson is quite a specimen. He was born that way. Now, certainly he's worked hard, but he was born with a certain amount of genetics and sort of the physical tools that enabled him to be where he is today. Is it fair that he was born that way? Was, is essentially the question. And you may say, well, yes, it is that fair. But there's a growing number of people I would submit to you, whether you agree with them or not, that would argue, well, that's just winning the genetic lottery. There's nothing fairness about that. In fact, what would be fair is having people being able to level the playing field so that you're all competing at roughly the same sort of physical capacity to the extent possible anyway. There will always be differences. And then you let competition take its place from there. 
And you may be uncomfortable with that idea and you may disagree with it, but I'm presenting it to you for all its benefits and its faults. I don't think it's the craziest idea in the world. I really don't. To say that, oh, this idea because you're born with this incredible gifts, that this is, that this is, well, and you weren't, well, that's just fair. Well, okay. Is it fair? Why is, tell me why that's fair. As, as we, we look at birth and the genetics of your parents and the way in which you were raised, these all sort of have this, the trimmings of fairness. I don't know that they do. I think you can make an argument that um, our notion of where we say fairness comes from and begins probably needs to be reevaluated in the way in which some measure of performance enhancing drug use levels that uh, isn't the craziest of all conversations. Rose Nama Yunus, aside from the claims against uh, Rufus Sports, do you think she is somehow setting a precedent for other athletes to come forward about a bad experience in the MMA world? Probably, although we'll have to see. We'll have to see. I mean, at one point that Eric Schaefer made was that, look, I can't deny, like, uh, like Schaefer is still in Milwaukee, and he was saying, um, you know, Duke's got the best school. And I think that, forget about Duke Rufus and about anyone else, if you've got a good school and you've got guys who go to the highest levels, like Eric Koch and Anthony Pettis and, you know, Ben Askren, um, people are going to want to train there. People are going to want to train there, for better or for worse. Um, but if they don't speak out, no one will really know, you know. Uh, Metamorphs, what is your take on the upcoming Metamorphs card? Can you break the matches down? I can quickly go over them because uh, I spent so long talking about the other stuff. But yes, I can. Um, I've got an interview with Gary Conan coming out. I think it'll be out tomorrow, as a matter of fact. So that's coming out. I've got, let's see, the card. Where's this card? All right, hold on. There we go. Sorry. Yes. All right. Um, so look for that. Zach Maxwell, go back and watch his match with, um, oh, God, Sean, um, a kid out of uh, health school. Um, God, name, name escapes me now. From the last Metamorphs in the Gi. Um, this one will be no Gi, I believe. But um, um, Gary is just so exciting. Such a risk taker. Innovative with positions. You know, and truly one of these guys who says, well, I'll just give up position to advance the scrambling, advance the, the bout, advance the match. And, you know, some guys say that and some guys don't. He, I mean, there's no doubt about Gary Tonner in the way which he does that. Constantly trying to invert or pass or take down or look for the back and will give up his for, you know, he loves deep half guard, for example. And so a lot of times he gets locked down there without being able to, you know, uh, without get much gain to himself. Obviously, he's very good at deep half, but, you know, against the very best and all the time. So that's a problem. Uh, we'll see what happens with Vinny Magalhaes. Um, Yuri Samoyes was supposed to go against uh, Rafael Lovato, and they've done it twice. And both at least two, two, two major times. Both times it was like a 50-50 battle. This time it's going to be Kevin Casey. The big story there, first of all, Yuri Samoyes, if you didn't see him with the 2014 Nogi Worlds, an incredible run, culminating in a win in the finals over... Keenan Cornelius. Now it was barely, but he he did it. Um, I think it was off a takedown, if I'm not mistaken. Takedown or a pass. But it was like two points, I think. Uh, the differential, anyway. Um, really looked incredible. I mean, had a, a sensational run. And so this time it would be interesting to see in a sub-only format what kind of differences there actually are. I, I actually don't think that anyone will submit the other one, but I think you might get the same thing you saw out of Keenan versus Vinny, which is to say a really sort of action-packed Guys going for it, guys taking risks, kind of match. Um, 
JT Torres or Rory McDonald. Rory's going to have a size advantage, but uh, JT Torres will have a skill advantage. I expect them to cancel each other out. You may see JT Torres win via heel hook. I'm sort of feeling that way, but um, that one's going to be close. These MMA fighters versus jiu-jitsu ones, it's good to get the MMA audiences in to watch the event, but there wants to be this problem because those guys don't have – they have a lot of skill, not the same level, not those little details, and so they wind up being a little more defensive than I would like. Uh, and then Sakuraba versus Henzo, if you talk to anybody who's training with Henzo today, they say he's – I had a couple guys that even in my school go up and say that, like, oh, my God, dude, Henzo is just training with monsters, and he looks incredible himself. I have a hard time seeing how Sakuraba's going to deal with that. But, you know, here's to figuring it out. Parts of Tito Ortiz and King Mo. What do you think about the announced purse of Tito Ortiz, 300 grand, and Mo, 10 grand? That's not what they made in the end. As I understand it, King Mo makes significantly more than that in different structures in his contract. Um, Jones versus Cormier. There was palpable hatred at the presser on Monday. The highlight of the presser was the last word game they were playing. Do you think this can last all the way until the fight? It's not only going to last until the fight. It's going to last until the next time they fight. I don't think they fight just once and that's it in their careers. I have a hard time believing that. Those two will probably meet again unless Cormier retires before it can happen because I just their rivalry is too real and too strong and too angry. UFC pay-per-view prices. Are UFC pay-per-view prices the same in different markets? Um, it's largely a North American phenomenon. I think a couple other countries might have it, but it's typically pay-per-view is only a phenomenon that you see in the United States and in Canada. And the pay-per-view prices there are largely set by the MSOs, by your in-demands and your direct TVs and, and so forth like that. Uh, obviously, UFC can charge a little bit more than they have on, on occasion, but it's usually a, they come to an agreement about that. In Mexico, uh, I think they're watching things on on live TV or on like UFC Network or something. Um, addressed that already. Luke, how flexible are you? Can you show us your flexibility in your podcast? No one cares. And uh, no, I am not flexible at all. True or false? Anthony Johnson finishes Gustafson. False. Anderson Silva's English at the time is now presser. Conference was barely functional. Um, I didn't listen to much of it. Welterweight is the strongest division in the UFC, followed by middleweight. Um, maybe true. No, true and then false. John Jones's title is more prestigious than Jose Aldo's. True. Leota Machida decimates CB Dalloway. True. Luke Rockhold fights Jacare for the number one contender. I hope that's true. Based on what we've seen from McGregor up until now, Connor has a better chance of winning against Aldo than he does against Mendez. That might be true. Because, again, is he better than wrestlers? He may very well be. We don't know. Could be yes, could be no. But what we do know is that the argument that he hasn't faced many of them, the kind that have no conception of striking with you whatsoever, they just want to get on top of you and grind, the, the argument that we have seen him answer that challenge is demonstrably factly wrong. We don't know. That doesn't mean he'll lose to them. We just don't know. Uh, Metamorphs 5 does better pay-per-view numbers than Metamorphs 4, even though you think it's a bad time slot. Uh, it might because of the headliners, but I doubt it. CB Dalloway finishing Machida would be a larger upset than Seaver finishing McGregor. Probably. Everyone would leave us as Gathlin happens in 2015. Well, it's going to happen at what, 181, 183? 183. A fighter's level of charisma determines the level of success he has in career more than his work ethic and athleticism do. False. Uh, ideal UFC schedule. Four big Fox. Um, 
10 pay-per-view and I would say 20 fight nights. That to me is about right. Anything more than that, you get you get a lot of problems. Bellator's productions. Not so much that I care about the giant WWE video screen screens that for the fighters' entrances, but overall, I love the feel of the Bellator event from a production standpoint. I love the white canvas from an aesthetic viewpoint. They did a great job with the camera angles. On a side note, is the cage smaller than the UFC's? It is smaller than the UFC's. Yes, noticeably so. If you go to a Bellator event, you're kind of surprised. In fact, one of the, weird, one of the actually bad parts about it is that if you have a seat on media row, um, so like you guys know when you watch like MMA events and you see like John Morgan there in his blue shirt or his yellow shirt, one of the cool things and the good things about the UFC is that, remember, it's an octagon. So the cage is in panels. And if you get seated in the front or at least the second row, but you're in the middle, what you get is that panel like a screen right in front of you which is great because you get to see a lot, you know, the camera guys are typically off to the side and um, it's just a flat surface with Bellator. It winds up rounding so narrowly that unless they're right in front of you or just off to the side, you miss a lot. Like if they're, if you're facing this way and they're right here on the edge of the cage, if you're facing, let's say if you're at six o'clock and they're at nine, you can't see it. Um, at least from media row, you can't see it because the, the narrowness of the curve actually uh, uh, cuts it off. John Jones runs the heavyweight gauntlet. Where does John Jones stop? Um, he can beat Roy Nelson. He can beat Travis Brown. He can beat Fabrizio Verdun. Well, that one will be tough, but he could do it. He can beat Miocic. I don't know if he can beat Dos Santos, and I don't think he can beat Kane. Luke, you have stated that in the past that doing more events does not necessarily make the UFC more money. Could you explain your reasoning behind this? Sure. Two arguments. One. Um, it was reported previously that that Singapore show they did, I believe, um, Tarek Safadine, uh, Hung Kyu Lim did not make money. So this idea that you can go to one of these sort of remote places, particularly in struggling parts of Asia, um, and just sort of like put up, put up a, a UFC show and make money, uh, is not true. Now I'm sure on the overwhelming majority of their shows, they do make money to the point you're raising, but they don't on all of them. Okay. So there, there's a fact there too. The argument that you can do all these shows and make money at the gate and there's no consequence on the other end is also not true. I would submit to you that when you do all these shows and you have to take, for example, what's coming up, great main event, Frankie Yeager versus Cub Swanson. That's a good show. That card, uh, it, I don't know what the gate attendance is, but maybe, maybe it'll do good money, right? But the point being is you also have the pay-per-view decline where these guys could be on those shows, buttress them some more, if not Frankie Yeager specifically, certainly plenty of other examples. Um, you can put them on those and have them be better. So this idea that, well, they go to the show and they made money on that live gate, that might be true. In fact, it may be true for 99% of the cases, but you also have to count on the other end, pay-per-view and its depletion as a function of doing those many shows. So this idea that it's just win, 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 we're just raking in all this money, I'm sure they're financially very solvent, I'm sure they're doing very well, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but I'm also not gonna submit to you that it's completely without consequence. Silva Weidman 3. Luke, Dana recently said on a Fox Sports interview, I saw it, that the upcoming fight will lead to bigger fights and also mentioned that Anderson Silva could fight the winner of Weidman Belfort. What are your thoughts on the possible Silva Weidman 3? Uh, you guys know, Jeremy Cruz told me that Anderson Silva wanted to position himself as being a title hunt after the fact because he had difficulty getting sponsors. Right? I mentioned this on the MMA beat. Okay? So now he's, a, whether he wants to be or not, maybe, maybe he does, but 
part of it also maybe just sort of a craftsmanship for financial gain. Um, and they're gonna put them in there because that's a big fight that people might wanna see. You and me may say, well, we've kind of seen how this happened, but UFC might say, and Anderson Silva might say, first one was a weird fluke, I didn't take him seriously. Second one, I broke my leg, I was still in that fight. You may say, well, okay, but you got knocked out in the first one because you were clowning. And the second one, you were losing up until the point where your leg broke. But they can at least make an argument that um, there's, the weirdness is still unresolved and there might be a commercial aspect to all of it. Long question. Um, I'll come back and answer this one about Gustafson and Jones. It's a long one. UFC going public. Luke, could the UFC's announced announcement have been their intent for the company to go public? No. Uninjured Diaz brothers. Luke, you often talk of how the Diaz brothers are never seem to get injured. Considering their seemingly relentless training regimen, do you think their mostly vegan diet could be a contributing factor? Is this some sort of like vegan diet? Like this guy pushes this a thousand times. I mean, I'm sure it has some effect. Uh, a buddy of mine who is a jiu-jitsu instructor recently switched to an all-vegan diet, says joints feel amazingly uh, much better. But in the end, uh, I, we need research. I don't know how many times I can say this. We need research. We need to see best practices. In that article I wrote, the Duke Rufus one, there was one thing unrelated to all of that that I thought was kind of interesting that Ben made. Wrestling coaches at the end and the beginning of seasons they get together and they share best practices or issues they have with governance. Everyone kind of knows what the other one is doing, not like day in, day out, from a sort of a macro perspective. And this enables people to train the right way, in a safe way, and in a competitive way. Luke, you and the rest of the MMA media seem to have endless complaints about the UFC and the way they run their business. Can you tell us three things that you feel like they are currently doing right? Um, sure. Um, the press conference wound up being a bit of a mess because they didn't have the announcement right. But I always think that getting big stars together for public events like that is a good idea. The execution might have been flawed, but I do think that the general idea, hey, let's get Silva and Jones and Cormier and all these guys, we have big fights coming up and Diaz and everybody else and Ronda, let's put them all together. Let's have a big event and let's make news. I think it's a good idea. I'd say that's one. Two, I think Latin America, in particular Mexico, um, they're doing the best they can with that. I, again, people say I'm against international expansion. No, I'm against global expansion. I'm all in favor of international expansion. They finally turned around Mexico. Seems like it was a big hit over there. I think that's a good thing. So definitely take that. Um, and three, here's a small one. People, people asked Dana White about Bellator's ratings and about Tito Ortiz, and he had nothing but nice things to say. I think that is a welcome development as well. But there may be many, many others that they do well. Let's see. Rank these beards. Hendrix, Norris, Nelson, Grizzly Adams, Santa Claus. Claus, Norris, Hendrix, Haggerty, Nelson. Certain people are abusing the media, and I feel like I'm the only one who realizes that. Why was there talk of Gina Carano for such a big time? She used Dana White to spark interest in her and her upcoming direct-to-DVD movies, which no one cares about. At the same time, Dana White played along because it could attract casuals. Why is there talk of Brock Lesnar joining the UFC again? His WWE contract will expire soon, and he wants to up the new one by a little bit. 
uh, talking about how he considers going back to anime again. That's who's Dana White just fine because it again attracts the casuals. Um, it's propaganda, nothing more, nothing less. It's not really propaganda. I don't know the ins and outs of the Quran situation from behind, but everyone I've spoken to about the lizard situation who might be in the know seems to think that it's not at all crazy that he could come back, and they didn't have anything like that to say about the Gina Carano situation. Um, this one seems a lot more concrete. But using the media to get your what you want, like we have to report what people say, we have to have a measure of skepticism, and it's a balance in getting it right, and I'm sure at times we will get it wrong, but when the president of a company comes out and says they're in negotiation, I mean, now we have the hindsight of knowing, well, okay, maybe that was all a ploy. But at the time, were we wrong for reporting on it? Now, you could say oh, there might have been over-reporting, and that might be a fair criticism, but, um, you know, we can't just ignore it. Like, it, it matters. Great question. Verdum's ascension. Um, it's Fabrizio Verdum giving us the be very best heavyweight MMA ever. I'm thoroughly impressed by his ascension and overall game. One of the biggest ground threats that MMA has ever seen is now knocking out K1 champions and thoroughly dominating dangerous dudes like Brown. Let's stop sizing up his chances against Velasquez for just one second and ask ourselves if he isn't displaying some of the best overall fight skill we've ever seen out of a big guy. 100%, no doubt about it. Verdum is one of these guys, and I, you know, it's, it was something that needed to be said before that bout. Yes, the calamitous and precipitous drop in both Hunt's career and stock, and then its dramatic rise made for an incredible story but there was a truth about verdum as well that he was had incredible ground skills but was a guy who was dismissed from the ufc at two and two record uh of a bad loss admittedly but a two and two record was given his walking papers didn't look that great against mike kyle didn't look that great against antonio silva uh eventually you know beat fedor but lost to over him you know all this stuff happened in between and then what you saw was his jujitsu became almost not an afterthought exactly, but a great insurance policy, a really great insurance policy. He really, and I think the first time I took notes of it was the Roy Nelson fight when he just banged him out in the clinch. I was shocked, man. I was shocked. Um, you know, and you saw some of that really come to fruition in the Travis Brown fight, not just in the clinch, but at range. And, and I mentioned this last week when we talked about guys like Kenny Florian and guys like Matt Brown, guys who maybe didn't hold UFC gold, but just gave everything they possibly could to work on their craft, to just get skills. Just get good. Just get good, and the rest of the game will take care of itself. And what I love about that is it's true for Verdum. Again, already had a considerable ground skills, but you, know, you look at guys like Hani Yaya. Like Hani Yaya and Verdum could not be further apart. You know, They could not be two different kind of guys if they tried. Right, just totally, totally uh, opposite views of what's required of them for success in mixed martial arts. And all these jujitsu guys, they could have gone the same route, you know, but they didn't. At least in the case of uh, Verdun. But to me, it's actually I'd add another wrinkle to the point you're making, which I fully endorse. The other wrinkle is that Verdun, at the time in which his skills all came together, he, his career sort of came together, right? He had done enough from a career standpoint and made himself valuable with his ability to speak other languages because folks would think he, he didn't just show up on the ultimate fighter latin america by accident right he had been doing promo tours in south america and spanish language broadcasts for ufc pay-per-view for a long time for a long time i and i you know i i, I know a bunch of the guys in the colombian mma scene he goes down there frequently 
to go do interviews on 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 uh, TV channels in there, and Lord knows where else he's been. I'm sure Argentina and and other places they're trying to make their way into. You know, he's done that. He's done that, and in Mexico too on UFC pay per view uh, broadcast. So like his skills came at a time when all the other things about him that both make him interesting and a well-rounded person also became monetizable and interesting. In other words, his career came together at the same time his skill set came together, partly by accident and partly not by accident, and it rewarded him. And you could not be happier for the guy. You could not. I try not to root or cheer against anyone, but, man, Fabricio Verdun makes it very, very difficult. One of these guys who is dedicated to his craft and, and slowly and meticulously and quite painfully eventually got good at it and then had all these other things positioned himself and that probably took some negotiating and some you know wheeling and dealing on his part hey let me go do some of this stuff look at my spanish blah 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 blah. and he did it he was a spanish language guy as a brazilian before they really were able to use many other other spanish language guys including cain velasquez and i just find that so remarkable and so endearing and uh, could not be happy for the guy Someone asked why we use the media player that we do. I can't say, but I can say it's a very good reason. Stripping Kane of the title. What's your thought on UFC stripping Kane if he doesn't compete by the spring? I think that they're just letting folks know um, we have we have deadlines to meet. We have to move this ship forward. You need to take care of yourself in training so that we don't have to come to a decision like this. Versus we want Verdum to be champion over you. I don't think that's what they're saying. I think that what they're saying is get it together in practice. And, you know, I'm not in favor of interim titles per se, but at some point I'm sympathetic to the UFC here a little bit. Like how many times they're going to, Cain Velasquez is going to get his moment in the sun in Mexico. I'm convinced of that, but I also feel like they're letting everyone else know, you know, Oh, not don't get injured, but for crying out loud, if you can do anything to minimize it, please do. And who is really against that? Nurmagomedov Madoff versus Champ Pettis and Melendez. Who gives Habib the toughest test, Pettis or Melendez? Uh, I would say Pettis. I think the striking is going to be a big problem for him. Question gets asked again, but it's your chat, and so I'll answer up to it. Luke, I remember times when you would do an extra 30 minutes of your live chat after hitting 500 comment marks. Lately, you seem to be getting only over half of the comments on average, about 250. Do you think oversaturation has anything to do with the decline in comments? As for me, I still enjoy your show as much as ever. I wish you would do two shows per week. A couple of comments. One, certainly the chat's popularity is related to interest in the sport. So if Jones Cormier are brawling, y'all are tuning in. If it's just C.B. Dalloway, you know, doing the robot on stage with uh, – who's the Canadian guy who does the robot in the UFC? Um, Brian Jimmo then no, you're not particularly interested in what, what I have to say. It just goes that way. But a couple of points. Number one, those chats that did like the 500 comments did a third of the traffic they do today. It has grown It has grown because of you, and I'm very grateful for it. Also, and I knew it going into it, I sort of cannibalized my own um, chat a little bit by putting it on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and other places like that because people folks tune in there and they don't watch it live on YouTube. But nevertheless, across the board, numbers are up, for which I am unbelievably grateful and it's all because of you guys. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I definitely feel like if the interest in the sport is down, then why do you want to come to me to talk about it? You don't, you know. Um, you said there'd be no Luke Thomas's piss this week. There's not. I have too much stuff going on. But you would get pissed in the live chat instead of 
uh, chat about the idiocy of comparing Tito and Bonner to the tough Latin America fight. So let's have it. Yes, I'm very glad you asked about this. There was one thing on Saturday that was driving me up the effing wall. Listen, we all like what we like, and to some extent, I suppose taste is relative. I have a little bit of an issue with that, but I'm at least willing to go along with it for the purposes of the argument that I am about to make. But please, please, if you are going to take the time to say Tito versus Bonner was a bad fight, I'm not going to argue with you. It was a bad fight. But you damn sure better go out there and say that those preliminary fights at UFC 180 were as bad or worse. Or just say they're as bad. I don't need you to even say they're worse. Just say they're bad. Call bad MMA when you mother effing see it. Please. Please, I'm begging you. I need you. I can't be out here doing all the heavy lifting. When we work as a team, the work is easier. Many hands make light work. And everyone's like, well, you're comparing the preliminaries to the main event. No, I'm not. I'm really not comparing cards. 90% market share, 10% market share. They're going to do some things that relative to what they're capable of are unsavory. I get that. And if you don't like it, I'm not telling you to like it. What I'm saying is I saw people, fans and media, and media, you know who you are, out there going, like, these fights are action-packed. They're great. Are you blind? Are you blind? Is that possible? Is it possible that I can put a blindfold around you telling you we're going to Yankee Stadium and I just put and I trick you and I take you to the Richmond Braves, put you in the Richmond Braves Stadium, make everyone wear Yankees uniforms and I don't know, Braves uniforms or whatever. It's an interleague play game. And you can't tell the difference? Really? That's what's happening here? Action fights are fine. I'm not telling you to hate action fights. Everyone likes a little bit of a scrap. But the reason why I'm harder on the UFC is because they have so many resources and so many good guys under contract and so many good fighters and the capacity to do things so well. And they do a lot of the time. I'm not here to tell you that they don't. But it's ironic that my column is called Signal to Noise. There is that signal the UFC has. I'll say it now. I'll say it a thousand times. The signal that UFC has is a signal that no one else in the sport can match. Fact. Fact. But they surround it with noise, and I don't understand why. I don't understand. Or maybe I do. Maybe I do. It's because fans can't. How can you not tell the difference between Weidman and Silva and Augusto Montano and Chris Heatherly? Yes, that's an action fight between two guys who are not UFC level. Not even close. Oh, they, they beat the hell out of each other. It was, you know, it was great. Was it? It wasn't bad in the sense that, like, there was a finish and one guy was doing things. Okay. It's so low level. It's so low level compared to what is actually the part of the product that no one else can match. That Weidman Belfort, that Weidman Machida, that Aldo Mendez. And I just mentioned this championship fights. Hell, uh, Havilov versus Henderson or hell. Lamas versus Bermudez. Those are the kind of fights, man. That's the kind of product UFC can trot out there and, and, and dare other MMA promoters to match, and they will win that debate every time. Every time. But for you to go out and say, I enjoyed that fight, and I also enjoyed this other fight between people who are orders of magnitude worse, who do things wrong from pillar to post and have not one-tenth the amount of ability as these guys do, Seems to me bat s. 
badass. But then Tito Barner comes up. Oh, look at these two old guys over the hill. You're not wrong. They are over the hill. That fight sucked. Just please, if you see bad MMA, say as much. Wherever you see it, just say it. Hey, I saw some bad fights on 1FC. Okay, great. If you want to be more forgiving of 1FC because they are who they are, they have, you know, they're just in Asia and they have a limited amount of resources and it's something of an international slash regional promotion. Okay, fine. And if you want to be a little more forgiving of Bellator because it's 10% market share, they, they don't really have a lot to work with. Okay, fine. And you can still also say, but I recognize that this level is pretty low. That's fine. Or if you just want to say, I like all fights because I have, you know, the palate of a toddler when it comes to being a fight fan. Okay, fine. But when you see guys doing things in the league that says this is where the best fight the best, they are creating a standard. They are creating a standard. And that's what I'm trying to hold them to. That's what drives me crazy. Bellator is never going to come out and say this is where the best fight the best because it's not. It's just not. UFC, though, has ridiculous amounts of talent. And I don't want to see that next to guys who have a ridiculous lack of talent. Do you think it's crazy for UFC Fight Night 57 that we are 50 questions in and no one has asked about this card for Edgar Swanson? Nope. Zero buzz. Which is a shame because it's a great main event. But also, there's Metamorphs this weekend. And I know that's not like uh, nearly as visible to the majority of the public, but for the hardcores, it's captured their attention. This is largely a hardcore, hardcore conversation. And then also Pacquiao's this weekend, too. Ben versus Safadine. I don't know how Ben is going to look at welterweight. I'm going to reserve judgment until I get a look at him. I want to see his size. I want to see how he matches up. But I'm hesitant to say that he's just going to run over guys. But I do think he'll be very competitive, at least with you know 15 to, to maybe 5. How did last week's uh, multiple fight cards come in from a traffic perspective? Um, remember something. So Dave Meltzer put up a, a really interesting point in his article. I don't know if the about the Bellator traffic, but I think fortunes changed for five. And he was saying there were way more searches for Bellator 120, which was the pay-per-view, than there was for Bellator 131. And that can be true. But the difference is um, whenever you have a pay-per-view, it's behind a paywall. And so some people are not going to jump that. And when that happens, more people are searching for results. If it's just on Spike TV, people will have fewer questions about it. That being said, traffic was great. Now, understand from a logistical standpoint, we had limited resources, right? I mean, we only have this many guys on staff. Some are in Mexico City. Some are covering World Series of Fighting. Some are covering Bellator. And so that minimizes the amount of content we're able to produce. But our Bellator results posts and 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 um, Bonner versus Ortiz posts, they did really well. They did really, really well. Now, again, not like UFC. Uh, but UFC is a much bigger entity. They're expected to do much better, and they did. A World Series of Fighting did poorly. I'll just take that out, right? Um, is there anything worse than fans at press conferences? If you think fans at press conferences are bad in MMA, you should go to a boxing press conference. It's a billion times worse. I'll give UFC credit there, man. They figured out a way to like minimize that. Um, Luke, did you see Joe Rogan's tweet? Yes, and I replied to it. If he ever wants to have me on a show, I go out there in a minute. If he's a busy calendar, which I'm sure he does, I'll wait my turn. Would love to be on, but you know I'm going to wait my turn. Japan getting back into the MMA game, do you think this will spark a revival? Will it have any significance? The people who are at the forefront of it are certainly the power players there, and with Fuji TV being in the, in the mix, that's an interesting... I'll put it this way. Their, their, their argument is that it hasn't gone away. It's simply uh, dormant, that you can reawaken these things. 
Um, listen, guys, these things have boom and bust cycles. Is it ready for a boom cycle? Um, I don't know. Combat sports, I've talked about this a million times on this chat, is already prone to boom and bust cycles. Are we at the beginning of another boom cycle? I have my head, my doubts, but the UFC events there actually have been successful with partnership with Dentsu. Um, I'll, I'll be cautiously optimistic, but, you know, trust but verify kind of thing. Michael Chandler, great question. Michael Chandler hasn't knocked, wasn't knocked out at the end of his fight with Brooks, but after watching that replay, he is clearly out on his feet and essentially lost time for a few seconds. Chandler has been in some great wars, but has taken a lot of punishment along the way. At that point, how do you, uh, how bad do you think his ability to take a punch has been compromised? Let me say something. I've talked about this to his face in a confrontational way, but like a truly inquisitive way. Do you feel like defense is enough of a part of your game? And he'll openly admit, probably not, but it's just not who I am. I'm just out there because I'm offensive, offensive, offensive. And if you look at Michael Chandler's game, the offensive portion of it is fantastic. He does have great takedowns, and he's relentless in his pursuit, and he can hit hard, and he's athletic, and he's quick, and he can scramble. There's all kinds of parts about his game that are really kind of important. But it just has to be said, the defensive portion of his game was never really brought up to speed because he didn't really need it, right? This is one problem with growing up in Bellator and, and, and where it's caught up with him. He grew up in a position, and I say grew up, I don't mean as a child, I mean as a fighter, where he was able to just leverage his offense all the time and guys weren't able to push back on it, at least nothing that he couldn't overcome uh, for the most part until he couldn't overcome it anymore. And Will Brooks just seems to understand through his patient use of basically counterfighting and then you know, launching more robust offense in key moments, that Michael Chandler is like that. His defense, he needs to simply retool his game. There's just no other way to say it. He has to stop and hit the reset button on it because it's not enough to say, I'm going to be defensive, 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 and then go back to fighting offensively the way I used to fight, hands down. Do you notice that I, I, I wanted to see when that fight happened because I was watching the UFC card. I had to go back and watch the Beltor card on DVR. I was waiting to see. I said, when, this, when the bell rings, where is Chandler's lead hand? And of course, right down here, doing the James Tony thing. Not exactly the James Tony role, but you get the idea. The Philly shell. Exact same thing. Exact same thing. And I was like, this is a problem. This is a problem. And and Will Brooks made him pay for it. He didn't bomb on him exactly, but he's just so open all the time that he has one. I agree. I don't. I, I think he's still got enough. Um. What's the word? Durability left to have a, a good career. I'm not saying it's over by any stretch of the imagination, but it's. I also think it's not, maybe not what it once was. And that last shot was weird. He was getting up from a scramble and got clipped with a left hook or maybe with a right hook, whatever it was. But did you notice like his head almost like inter impacted with his shoulder? And then he just simply didn't know where he was, waving it off like this. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff, man. It is a direct result. I, I, I am firmly convinced, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I am firmly convinced that he has just not made defensive fighting enough of a priority, and it has cost him. One other note, Patrick Wyman had a good point, that a lot of guys get to a point in their career where they have to hit the reset button. And he sort of said Vitor Belfort at a point had to hit the reset button in his career. Um, and, 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 and Robbie Lawler eventually hit a wall. He had to hit the reset button on his career. And, but eventually they came roaring back. That's what Michael Chandler is going to have to do. I think it's a great point, and I want to share it. 
True or false, Rampage finished his career with one last fight in the UFC. I would not doubt it. I would not doubt it. I'll take him back. Why would you take him back? He's still good for a pay-per-view or certainly a fight night. You rob him of Bellator's ability to use it. Sounds like he doesn't want to be a Bellator anymore. And how many fights does he really have left? Plus, you got plenty of you know tape on him. And you could say he's been on a win streak. You could sell it, dude. You could sell it. People say, oh, people won't believe that. You just saw Tito Ortiz and Stefan Bonner get 2 million people on Spike TV. People will believe it. Plus, Rampage has been winning. Luke, which is a bigger win for Bellator? Getting 100K buys for their inaugural pay-per-view or getting nearly 2 million peak for their first real show under the Scott Coker era? They're important uh, wins in different ways. One, um, you know, it shows that you can cross over into the space, right? I mean, because that 100K threshold was always something that most people couldn't do. Um, we, we believe Affliction did it at one point, but then couldn't sustain it and certainly didn't have the kind of backing and infrastructure that Bellator has. But really, I would say the $2 million, the $2 million, the $2 million person peak to me is a little more interesting because it actually creates a roadmap for future success. The pay-per-view was a one-off that they maybe had to do just for Eddie Alvarez, and it's an interesting achievement. But the question is, is that kind of thing sustainable? Now, the questions are still there for for Spike and Spike Force, as some people call them, for Spike and for Scott Coker and for Bellator, right? Because, okay, you know what's crazy? When Tito Ortiz came into Bellator, everyone was like, oh, my God, I'm so sick of Tito. Number one, I think a lot of those feelings were real, but there's also a disconnect between casual fans and hardcores. But I'll say the following, man. When I was in Memphis at Bellator 120 and he fought Shlomenko, I was shocked, man, because you read online about Tito Ortiz all the time, and it's like, Tito's the worst person since Osama bin Laden, and I hope he dies of Ebola. And Oh, my God, he's the stupidest person in the world. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that I don't think it was a PR campaign. I think Dana White genuinely had issues with him, and fans believed it. This is my point about Dana not doing post-fight scrums. Like when Dana says stuff, he defines much of the narrative by which the conversation takes place for good or for bad, man. He's that powerful and that um, um, his words – matter that much to the rest of the community and the fan base but be that as it may but people believe that stuff whether it's true or it's not they believed it but the hardcores really believed it. it looks like there's a whole portion of fans that didn't believe it dave doyle went out there and said first of all largest gate in Bellator history close to eight thousand people and they were saying 10 minutes after the show was over tito ortiz was walking out or walking back to the k or the 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 backstage and people were chanting tito tito i mean that's unfathomable if you just read about him online you would think that it's like you know, how is it pot? Do you pay these people from North Korea to come over and cheer for him because they're desperate? You know, that's what you would think, but it's not the case. It's, it's really not. There's a lot of fans out there. But the point being is, um, you know, how are they going to replicate that? How are they going to get those people to, um, excuse me, how are they going to get other headliners? Because you look at some of these other headliners and, you know, listen, uh, the British Invasion show looks cool. You know, Daly versus Lima and then uh, Liam McGeary versus Newton. Bobby Lashley versus James Thompson and Linton Vassal versus uh, who is Vassal fighting? I've forgotten now. Uh, oh, Sukaju. Right? Fun little card for Spike TV, is it not? That'll, that'll do pretty well. I don't think it'll do 2 million. And so you sort of wonder, you do the math, you look at the roster, it's like, who's the guy that can do that? But what I would say is consistently delivering on Spike is sort of its own rewards. Pay-per-view is one of these things where like Oh, I still may like Bellator, and I still may like these fighters, but I'm not going to pay for them. I think that um, focusing on television, diving back into that space, putting all your resources, training the guns, as it were, on that, 
is something where you can much more easily, even with sort of uh, limited resources in terms of the kind of popular headliners, it's just easy to achieve and can do a lot for your brand. Remember I mentioned they have to sell, they have to have high enough ratings to sell uh, enough inventory in terms of ads. I think that um, just focusing everything on spike, 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 spike all the time. It's an investment process versus investing in pay-per-view space. That's just, that's like a cash grab, you know, and not for the UFC, UFC is a little bit different, but for Bellator it'd be a cash grab. This is about reinvesting in the brand and creating brand unity. And that, that to me is, is a little bit more important, a little more doable and creates longer term benefits. Let's go to Twitter. I haven't even touched Twitter this whole time. Can we get a detailed recap of USA versus Ireland? Um, every American player had diarrhea. There you go. Which weight classes have an opportunity to really shine in 2015? I would say uh, certainly featherweight, um, women's straw weight, um, and I would say light heavyweight. Those three. And probably, I mean, middleweight too to an extent. What do you think about Diaz rejoining 170? Dana said if he wins, he could be a title shot at welterweight. I, did I not say that exactly on this chat? If Silva wins, he might get a title shot at middleweight. If Diaz wins, he could get a title shot at welterweight. Because why? Even though the fight is in some ways totally meaningless, I mean, it's not, but in some ways it's like these two guys are fighting who what, what for. They're both coming off of losses. It's because fans care about them tremendously. It's two superstars impacting. And you see this all the time in boxing. When superstars collide, uh, when superstars collide, people want more possibilities about them. Oh, my God, Diaz won? Well, what if he fought? Hey, he, should he be fighting for a title? I mean, you just be Anderson Silva. You can sell on a credibility thing, and plus it's, it enhances the star power aspect of fight promotion. It does so much for people when you match stars up together. To me, it's not in any way surprising or, or even really a, a terrible idea. How embarrassing is it that Fallon Fox wrote a better article than 90% of the MMA media is able to write? Not sure what you're referencing, but not surprising. Ronda seems like she may retire soon. Does retiring without having fought Cyborg taint her legacy? It does not taint her legacy. Her legacy is pretty good, right? Because it wasn't like she was ducking Cyborg. It's that it just feels unresolved. How about a Joe Rogan shout-out? What's up, Joe? Any chance it really happens? I hope. Um, let's see. What is wrong with Angela Magana? I don't know. <laughs> I've seen her calling everyone in the Western Hemisphere a chump on Twitter. I'm sure it's resulted in me getting called one, too. Is it crazy to think Belter 131 could be event of the year? Um, I don't think it's event of the year. I think it was a fun event. But event of the year, unless they really did something special, event of the year should just be reserved for the event that was the best, that was the most important. Do you think Nick Diaz will face the loser of Hendricks versus Lawler if he loses to Silva? Entirely possible, especially if it's Lawler. I, I, who is not trying to see Diaz versus Lawler too? That fight was crazy the first time. It'll be even better the second. Who is not trying to see that? Romero Jacare, break down this number one contender fight. This one is interesting to me, man, because you can see Romero. Romero wins in close quarter scrambles on the feet. I don't know that he can do that against someone as quick as Jacare. Remember, this is not Olympic wrestling. They're not both bending over and looking for pushouts. Not the same thing. Um, um, if Jacare is taken down, you know, good good luck, Romero. You know, either A, keeping him down, or B, uh, not getting submitted, right? Even if Jacare gets taken down, 
he can create like omoplata scrambles to to you know get back to his feet. So for me, I definitely favor Jacare. I think that I wouldn't discount Romero and his ability to leap in, but I think the defense of Jacare is much improved at this point. And in close quarters, even if Romero is stronger athlete with better wrestling, it's not like Jacare's wrestling is bad. And even off his back, you just Jacare's guard is. I mean, look at Jacare's guard and watch this. Here's a little test for you about Jacare's guard. If Jacare is taken to the mat. I'll get taken to the mat, right? From there, count how often his lower back is off the mat, right? Because that's what you need for mobility. Jacare's back, like, it's amazing, man. It's amazing how good he is. Watch how little of his guard play involves him being lazy like that. And watch how much of it is just him off of his back, or the small of his back, I should say, and just constantly working for things, constantly working for things. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I saw this because uh, Dennis Seaver says it wasn't appropriate. Is Connor's trash talk appropriate? How far can a fighter go to sell a fight? What do you think? I'm one of these guys who I'm pretty laissez-faire about it. You know, I mean, there are obviously some limits, and I'm not exactly sure what they all are. But, for example, people are like, oh, Frank Mir said he wanted to kill Brock Lesnar. Well, didn't Ronda Rousey just say she wanted to kill Cyborg? No one cared about that. I don't care that he said that. Oh, he's not actually going to do it. If you have proper regulation, he's not going to do it. You know, So I don't really care about that. And maybe he's, maybe he's just hyping a fight anyway. Guys say horrible things about each other in uh, in boxing too, you know. Um, now, you know, I guess I'm at a point now where I guess I'm too old to appreciate Ricardo Mayorga calling, you know, make, uh, basically being homophobic. I, that doesn't really appeal to me. I, I like more clever things. So I guess my issue with, you know, calling Seaver a Nazi, it's just cheap and it's stupid and it's not really all that clever. You know, you like it when someone's clever and they get to the heart of somebody and what they are rather than just sort of insulting, a, you know, a, a dark chapter of national heritage. That's not very interesting to me. But, you know, when he and Chad Mendes are going back and forth, it is juvenile when he says, oh, my ball's on your head, or even I'm going to rest my balls on your head. All right. You know, it's juvenile, but it works, right? Uh, let's do a true or false, and then we'll get out of here. True or false, Carlos Condit will work his way up to getting another title shot. I would say false, but I'm not overly confident about it. John Jones will move up to heavyweight within two years. True. Mark Hunt is still only one win away from a title shot. Um, no, false. Bisping may no longer be a top contender, but still has some good years as a gatekeeper. True. Overeem should not be able to turn the tide and revive it. Overeem will not be able, excuse me. To turn the tide and revive his career. Uh, I will say true. Shogun will not be able to turn the tide and revive his career. True. The UFC would be justified in taking away Kane's belt if he can't fight in March. Um, I would say false, while also, as I mentioned before, being somewhat sympathetic to the UFC just about the purposes of keeping the scary. Last thing, uh, one more. Brock Lesnar. If he returns, how should he be utilized? What's an appropriate fight for him in the UFC? I've heard guys throw out Gabriel Gonzaga. I'm not sure if Brock can even beat him. I would say somebody like Roy Nelson because I think that Brock can definitely use his wrestling to win. What you want to make sure is you at least get one win out of the guy. Because how many times is he going to fight? Four times? If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Twice seems much more likely, especially if one of those ends on a brutal end of a knockout. Give him people that he can out-wrestle. Give him people that he can or at least has a chance about wrestling, you know. Because Roy Nelson, what were they going to say? Oh, this is classic striker grappler. Roy Nelson's going to be digging with the uppercuts. 
as 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 Lesnar comes in, Lesnar doesn't like getting hit, but boy, Lesnar can really wrestle and blah blah blah. And it's a redemption fight. Plus, people like Roy Nelson; it'd be an interesting fight in some capacity. Uh, I like that one for him. Um, maybe Steve Miocic if he loses to Junior Dos Santos. Um, you could even do Mark Hunt. You could even do Mark Hunt. Um, oh, that'd be a tough fight for for old Brock Lesnar right out the gate. Uh, I think you respect where he's at without giving him somebody. Let me see the rankings here real quick, and then I'll cut this off. Because you, if you don't give him somebody rank, they're just gonna be like, "Oh, you're just feeding him cans." So you want to give him somebody ranked, right? You could do another fight with Mir. Um, you could do Mitrione. You could do. Um, Sean, uh, God, what's his name? I'm losing my mind. Um, the kid who left Jackson's for ATT, the LSU linebacker, the one who does the backflip. Sean, uh, I don't know. I've forgotten his name now because I'm an idiot. But you get the idea. There's a bunch of names for him at that end of the, of the business that you could give him that I think would be really working the sales component and also even for a credibility standpoint given how long he's been going and the like. Okay. I hope this has been as uh, fun for you as it was for me. Thank you for watching. I greatly appreciate it. Please, please, please share this video far and wide if you can. I'm greatly appreciative of the fact that you've watched this. Um, give it a thumbs up and a like. If you have any questions for me about the Rufus Sports Story or anything else, you may reach out to me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You may also tweet at me at sbnlukethomas. I will do my best to get to as many questions as I can. There is no Luke Thomas's fist this weekend because I'm super busy, but this weekend at MMA Fighting, Ben Morris coverage, UFC coverage, and Pacquiao coverage. Lots of good stuff for you. Thanks for watching. Until next time, stay frosty.